Hey everyone, welcome to the 62nd episode of The Liam McCollum Show. I should be releasing two interviews today on September 8th, but I recorded this interview with Dave DeCamp on September 7th, and he is the assistant news editor of antiwar.com. We're talking about everything from Russia to China to Iran and the Iran deal, so I hope you enjoy it, and then I should be releasing another episode with Scott Horton about the Afghanistan war and our withdrawal. I hope you enjoy this interview, and I'll link to all of Dave's information, and remember to subscribe to me on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Here's Dave. All right, everyone. So I got Dave DeCamp with me. If you read antiwar.com, you've definitely read his stuff. He's constantly writing pieces over there daily. So um, I'm really glad to have him on. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks, Liam. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. And I, I want to know more about you because I've been reading your stuff for a little bit, but I don't, I don't know really anything about you. So uh, do you want to just explain how you started working with antiwar.com, um, how you became antiwar and maybe you're a libertarian, right? Yeah. Yeah, I am. How you became a libertarian too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's all connected. Uh, you know, this is a uh, pretty recent for me. I only started, I started writing for antiwar.com full time last September. So it's been about a year now. And for a few years before that, I was uh, doing it part time, but for me, I was, uh, kind of a, a political most of my life through college. I didn't really care. Uh, I didn't pay much attention. Um, and then in my early twenties, I started listening to people like Abby Martin on, and that's how I learned about Palestine. It's something I just had no knowledge of, uh, going through high school, like public school and then college, which is pretty amazing. Uh, if you think about it, I think that's a way that they propagandize us is by just not teaching us, mm -hmm. um, about stuff. But so I kind of considered myself a leftist because I, that, that was the thing that I felt really strongly about was being anti-war, anti just being against, you know, the world empire. And to me, I only really saw the left anti-imperialist left doing that. Um, but then, uh, you know, as time went on, I heard Scott Horton. I started reading antiwar.com, which I, I remember reading when I was like way younger because they've been around forever. It's, they started in 1995. And I remember uh, just being on the site in high school at one point. Um, but, and, you know, it was just, uh, it was really listening to Scott and because he really appealed to me and, and he does that. He kind of appeals to, uh, sorry, I feel like I got a big echo in here. Um, he really appeals to the, to the left kind of, uh, so just really listening to him. And then I started working with him and Eric Garris, who runs antiwar.com. I just started, um, cause I always wanted to be a writer and I started writing and just sending them stuff in that they published on the blog. And then they asked if I wanted to do more in the news section and it kind of just slowly happened. And, uh, I read, you know, I'm not that into theory, really. I read some Rothbard. I read Four New Liberty, which to me, it's like, okay, that's sounds good. That's, you know, a good political ideology for me. I think it's most consistent with being anti-war and against the empire. And I read End the Fed by Ron Paul, like back in when he was like running, when I was like kind of apolitical. And I remembered saying, yeah, that, this makes a lot of sense. The central banking aspect, the gold standard, you know, if we weren't a world empire, we would need real money to that that was backed up by something. So it's for me, it's the most logically consistent ideology. And um, yeah, I was really kind of happy to find it the way I did, even though there's a lot of libertarians that I don't really agree with most of the time. But I think if ultimately your view is an anti-interventionist, anti-war 
view, then, you know, you're on my side. And, and, and that's kind of the idea of antiwar.com. I mean, we publish uh, columnists from all over the political spectrum. I mean, Danny Sarson, he's one of our, you know, regular contributors, one of our best, and he's a, you know, he considers himself a progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we always did that. And Justin Ramondo, who passed away about two years ago, you know, he was a radical libertarian, uh, you know, right, like a right wing libertarian, I guess. But uh, so it's just it's cool to have this all these different perspectives on it. And uh, that's something that I really like about the website and why I got involved. I remember I told them I was a leftist when I first started working with them, just even at the time, like I didn't really consider myself one, but I just wanted to see if they cared and they were just like, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I, I actually just uh, talked to Misty Winston about Assange and we, we were able to mm-hmm. talk just anti empire stuff. And it, it's crazy how I'm able to, relate with a leftist as someone who believes completely in free market health or free market healthcare, free market economics, like to be able to actually sit down with her and have a conversation. We're able to sympathize with each other because we just don't like the status quo. It's pretty awesome. I think, but were you, um, had you had any experience reporting before you started writing with antiwar.com or any experience writing? Um, no, not really. I went to, I was working on the Staten Island ferry at the time. I I used to work on ferries and boats. I went to maritime college. I got my license to do that stuff. So no, I'm, and, uh, you know, um, Scott really helped me out a lot with some basic writing stuff. And then, uh, they gave me a place. I mean, I was really lucky because they just gave me a place to, write whatever I wanted. They gave me a plat as much as I wanted. They're just like, okay, yeah, what, what else you got? Uh, and you know, with independent media, n- nobody has much money. So luckily for me, I was working at the time, but I had a lot of time off. So I didn't ask for money f- until like a, a year into it. it. It may be more, but so, so that's one thing that that's one of the toughest things about independent media, I guess you would call it is, uh, is money is funding. Cause so much of the time is spent. Um, you know, we do a fundraiser every three months. So much of the time is spent calling donors and, and, and it's, you know, it's really tough. And luckily for me, I found a place that was, they're so well established and have been around a while. Um, so yeah, I think, and, and what we try to do is we try to do a daily news page about, we do it six days a week and, it's a lot. It's kind of an ambitious project and a lot goes into it. Um, so we work really hard and work longer hours than most people would for the money we make, but yeah. you know, we're all really passionate about it. Yeah. And, uh, what is your work schedule like? Because I mean, just trying to like schedule an interview with you and how often I see your articles, it, I, I see your name all the time. So what is it like to be a reporter? I'm, I'm actually studying here at the journalism school at the university of Montana. Oh, nice. I'm, I'm very fascinated by just yeah. the different work schedules. And especially when you're up against like a propagandized, you know, country and a propagandized empire, just like how you sift through everything. Yeah, it's tough. So I wouldn't call myself a reporter. I'm more of like a blogger really, because I use, um, you know, we use, uh, the resources of, you know, kind of the mainstream media, I guess you could say like, I'm a lot of stuff I write is based on Reuters and AP wires and kind of their short write-ups of it. You know, sometimes I get direct quotes from people and once in a while I've broken something, but 
because of the amount of content that we want to put out, um, it, it, it's, we use, uh, you know, stuff that's publicly available, open source information, I guess you could call it. But for, for what I do pretty much, um, right now my boss, uh, I'm kind of filling in for him. So I'm doing a little extra work. That's why it was so hard to schedule the interview. Um, but my typical day, I start around noon. Um, and I, we have like a link database and we go through and we look at all the, the news and just put stuff in that's relevant. And then a few hours, you know, around four or five or sometimes earlier, I meet with uh, my boss, Eric, and we go over what I'm going to write. And then I pretty much just write until midnight. Um, some days it's crazy and I'll, I'll write eight to 10 articles, which um, we haven't had busy days like that. It seems like this time of year is kind of a little slower, but uh, some days, you know, I'll write, um, less, but, uh, that's the thing. Cause we focus on the, just putting out the content because, and like you said, sifting through all the, all the propaganda, that's a big part of the job. And that's kind of the reason why I think people like to read us because like I said, we're not really breaking stories, but we just put things in the right context because you'll see Reuters, you on Reuters and, um, you know, they'll report on something, but it'll be just like a two sentence, literally a two sentence article about it. And it's nowhere else. But it's like, oh, that's pretty important, like an airstrike in Somalia or something. So then I'll write that up and put more, bring more attention to it and kind of cut out, um, not in that case, but in other cases, like, you know, you cut out kind of the fluff um, and the, the nonsense. Like the, I, one, of the, one example I could think of that's just like incredible was there was that recent U.S. drone strike in Kabul uh, the last, pretty much the last day that the U.S. was there and it came out lit. It, that, that it killed 10 civilians. And this, this first CNN article that I saw about it, there's like in a defensive, in a defensive drone strike against ISIS K planners. It's like, holy, like they actually changed it later in the day, but it was just incredible. Some of the propaganda that you, that you come across and even just the things that they don't say, like when it comes to Iran and Israel, um, something I just like to mention in my articles is that Israel has nukes and Iran doesn't. <laughs> These are things that a lot of Americans don't know. I think there was a recent poll. It's like more Americans think that Iran has nukes than, uh, than Israel. Um, so yeah, stuff like that. That's a big, that's a big part of it. And also just the wording. I mean, we, we talk about Yemen, uh, Yemen is a big topic for us. That's another reason why I really like the libertarian movement today is that I think, I don't think there's any other really American anti-war movement that talks about the war in Yemen so much, which is really like the worst thing that's happening in the world. Mm. And just the wording, uh, the Iranian backed Houthi rebels is what they're called in the mainstream press. And we call them the Houthi, Yemen's the Houthi government or not really government, but just the, the Houthis, the, the who's in power in, in Yemen. Um, and I try to say like uh, the Hadi government, he's the exiled president that hasn't been living in Yemen since 2015. Um, you know, if we refer to his fighters, I like to call them the Hadi government, just so it's not like the government of Yemen because it's misleading. They only control like one little portion of the country now. So it's just stuff like that I think is important. Yeah. I, I have a couple of friends who write for some, uh, you know, foreign newsletters or um, newspapers. And something that we, we've talked about is just how sometimes the way you lie or some or sometimes the way you distort truth is is not necessarily like omitting or actually like playing with the facts it's just how you arrange truth 
And, and it seems like uh, I read the New York, the New York times article that actually was talking about the, the children who got killed in the drone strike. And it wasn't until like 30 paragraphs down and, and the entire focus was on ISIS K or like when they talk about Russia, like it'll be talking about some negotiations, but it's always within the context of tensions or something like that, rather than just reporting on the actual facts of like why they met and, and what was discussed there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, actually to get into the news, um, it's, it's kind of ironic. I, I scheduled a room here to do the interview at my school and they have like a brief history. Oh yeah. <laughs> Afghanistan war. <laughs> but, um, yeah, just to talk about what's going on in the world. Um, I'll be talking with Scott Horan tomorrow about us pulling out of Afghanistan. So I kind of want to like bring the attention to what the military is doing now that we're leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it really seems that tensions are rising with Russia and China, um, specifically with just NATO and the Black Sea and different stuff like this. So uh, do you just want to talk about what's going on with Russia and if if you're pretty worried about the situation? Yeah, well, with Russia, um, you mentioned the Black Sea, and that's an area where both the U.S. and NATO have really stepped, like really stepped up their activity uh, this year. Um, and you know, Russia reacts to it because um, there was a, recently a British warship sailed within 12 miles of Crimea, which the West doesn't recognize that as Russia, but to Russia, that's Russian territory. Um, you know, and that was just like an extreme, completely unnecessary provocation. Uh, Russia, uh, you know, fired some warning shots. And then after that, there were these huge exercises, U.S. and NATO led drills with Ukraine too, which is a very like just sensitive um, country for the U.S. and NATO to be cooperating so closely with. And then you see like, you know, Russian planes will fly overhead and like surveillance planes and then this will be reported as russian aggression in the black sea because they're keeping an eye on these huge naval flotillas um so with russia um i'm definitely i'm always concerned about the tensions with russia because nato exists and nato is so close to russia and seems interested in provoking them um it doesn't seem like ukraine is going to join nato anytime soon um, the president Zelensky, he, he is, you know, he wants it, but he, Biden recently said that not, you know, now they have to work on their corruption, which is really funny for Joe Biden to say that because when he was in the Obama government, uh, the U S orchestrated a coup in the country and then Hunter Biden got a job, uh, working for Burisma, the, the natural gas company with no experience making, I think like 50 grand a month on an advisory board or something. So like the nerve of Biden to talk about corruption in Ukraine, but so, cause he doesn't care. So what I mean is like, they're just kicking the can down the road for the NATO membership. I don't think that they, they know that that would be such a provocation with Russia. I don't think that they want to do that right now. Um, they just announced some more weapons for Ukraine. Um, I forget, I think it was Javelin anti-tank missiles and some small arms. Um, so that's con- continuing. Um, so, that's kind of the, what the status quo now is with Russia, I guess. Uh, I mean, I, you could say that the, some of the Black Sea stuff is new um, and there's been new U.S. sanctions on Russia. Biden and Putin had that convention, uh, not convention, that, that the meeting in Geneva uh, and 
you know, there's some nuclear arms control talks happening, but I, I, I don't really see them. I don't know. Ho- hopefully they, they make some progress and we get some new arms control treaties, but I'm not that hopeful for that. And then you have China, which I'm kind of more concerned about, even though right now with Russia, it's like more likely that a conflict could spark. There's more tripwires, I guess, because NATO's there and, and that stuff. But China is where everything is like going. Um, the Pentagon, when they requested the budget for next year, they identified, they said, we need this to uh, face China, which is the top pacing threat is the term that they use. Um, and you see that the Biden administration, they're picking up on what the Trump administration started doing. They're trying to like kind of build alliances in Asia against China. And you have uh, what kind of scares me more about the Biden administration is that, you know, they're better at stuff like this. Like Mike Pompeo was trying to do this, but he was he wasn't really making any progress. He just sounds like a psycho when he goes to the Philippines or he was in Vietnam railing against the Chinese and stuff. But, you know, you have um, Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense. He recently visited Vietnam, Singapore, and the Philippines. And then Kamala Harris, pretty shortly after him, he visited Vietnam and Singapore. And they both, you know, they said some hawkish things about China too. But Vietnam, I, I, I can't see Vietnam kind of getting on board. I think they're just trying to kind of stay in the middle, which is mo- what most countries, they don't seem eager to join in Southeast Asia there. Um, even the Philippines, I mean, they had their issues with China in the South China Sea. Um, they have overlapping claims and there's fishing stuff, but Duterte, he doesn't really want to go all in with the Americans right now. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. But, um, but yeah, everything, I mean, all the spending, all of the uh, military branches, they're all kind of reorganizing to go to face China and Russia, what they call a great the great power competition, which was outlined in the 2018 national defense strategy. Um, it's kind of a shift away from the stuff in the Middle East towards this. And now you have Afghanistan. And this is one of the reasons why I think, even though if you look at Afghanistan on a map, it might seem a little important when it comes to if, if China and Russia are your, uh, your what you're focusing on because of the location in Central Asia there. But Biden pretty much had a choice to either escalate the war, send tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of troops in, which is what it would have taken, or pull out and kind of deal with deal with it later. Um, so you could keep keep the military focused on this pivot to Asia and um, the Arctic and Eastern Europe. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a big part of the reason why he was able to get at like why we actually left Afghanistan for the most part and the drone war might continue. Um, hopefully it doesn't, but I mean, the U S is out of Afghanistan. It's a pretty big deal. Uh, and if you look at the conflicts, the other conflicts in the middle East and Iraq and Syria, you're not going to see a big escalation. Um, you know, the, it, it's kind of, kind of be a status quo. I think, um, the U S recently announced that they're, pulling all of their combat troops out of Iraq by the end of the year, or maybe early next year, but they're going to keep some troops in, in an advisory role. So that kind of gives them wiggle room to leave. Uh, uh, the number isn't going to change very much It's about 2,500 us troops in Iraq and about a thousand in Syria. And though the ones in Syria aren't going anywhere, this is the status quo that the Americans want. They want to control Northeast Syria, keep it out of the hands of Damascus, keep them under sanctions, keep 
the oil out of their hands that's in Northeast Syria. And they need the bases in Iraq to support this. Now you might see other countries, France is trying to kind of get more of an influence in Iraq as the, as they see the Americans not leaving, but focusing less on it, I guess. Um, and this might kind of be the name of like the name of the game for the U S and the middle East now is to have allies kind of fill in the void of the U S resources that are pulling out of there and going to Asia or wherever. Um, you know, they want cooperation between Saudi Arabia and Israel and the UAE and Bahrain against Iran. And they want, and NATO, cause NATO, I believe I could, I have to look more into this, but they, they announced earlier this year that they're sending a few thousand more troops to Iraq for training and, and advising. So I think kind of NATO, the Europe, European allies fill some of the void. You get more cooperation between Israel and the Arab states, which is what a lot of Trump's peace, his, uh, the Abraham Accords that normalized relations between Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, a lot of, a big aspect of that is to isolate Iran. Um, so we'll, we'll, like I said, I don't, I don't see a major escalation there. Um, Iran and Saudi Arabia have been talking lately. And so hopefully that goes somewhere, even though the U S generally tries to stop that type of stuff. But I mean, but, but then, you know, Biden's still supporting the war in Yemen. That hasn't changed. Um, and he recently started bombing Somalia again. So these kind of, you know, I hate to call them low intensity conflicts because for the people that are on the other side of our bombs are not low intensity, but mm -hmm. from the perspective of the Pentagon, they're not, it doesn't take too many resources for them to continue them. Uh, so that's kind of what I see going forward and China being the main thing. And when it comes to China, you know, any rational person would say, we can't go to war with China because they're, we completely rely on, on each other. Our economies are intertwined, but there, there are steps being taken to kind of decouple and it would, I mean, much more drastic steps than what they're doing now with sanctions and ex export controls and, the, and just some restrictions, but, you know, with China, I, I really do think if things keep going the way that they're going within 10 to 20 years, like there could be a chance for a real war or just a kind of a cold war. Cause that is what the Pentagon's interested in. China's the big, it's a, they're a big country. Uh, a lot of Americans are kind of don't like China now. Um, mm -hmm. There was a recent poll that said 52%, I think it was, would are in favor of sending troops to defend Taiwan, which is scary because yeah. that is only going to go up. I think the public consent for a war with China. Um, so yeah, it's going in a dangerous, very dangerous direction. Yeah. I, I'm wondering about China. I, when, when people talk about China being more aggressive, um, it's funny, you know, there some people will cite Taiwan and some people will cite Hong Kong, but for the most part, it seems that people are talking about like cultural issues, like, like the fact that LeBron, for instance, censored himself because he said that, I think it was because he said Taiwan was a country or something like that. Um, yeah. I think LeBron, it was something with Hong Kong. Okay. Yeah. It may have been with Hong Kong, but what I found interesting about those cases is that people seem to seem to be citing like the economic power of China as part of what about China is aggressive and, and, but to me, when it, when it comes to LeBron and like censoring himself, it kind of just shows how good trade is at trying to create peace. Because even if words are to upset people that were, you know, kind of reliant on, then I think that 
that just demonstrates how how trade is going to enforce good relations between people because like to the point where lebron will worry about saying something that will just piss them off you know like it's like it, i think that that's an overall good sign but then people do cite hong kong and taiwan so i guess what is your argument um towards people who say that, well, we really do need to defend Taiwan. I, I, I know what your argument probably is, but like for people who, you know, are, are really worried about Taiwan or Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Well, when it comes to Taiwan, a lot of Americans, I don't think really understand like the history of it, why that situation is what it is. And uh, do you remember the, when COVID like first hit the world health organization guy was asked about Taiwan and he like hung up or something. Yeah. And everybody freaked out about it. WHO considered Taiwan's membership. Hello. With the, with the I'm sorry, I can't hear. You. I couldn't hear your question. Okay. Yeah. Let me, let, let me, let me repeat the question. No, that's so. okay. Let, let's move to another one then. Right, because because I'm I'm actually curious on talking about Taiwan as well on Taiwan's case. We decided to give Dr. Alward another call to follow up. And I just want to see if you can comment a bit on how Taiwan has done so far in terms of containing the virus. Well, we've we've already talked about China. And that made me realize a lot of Americans don't know that the U.S. doesn't recognize Taiwan as a country. Um, And the reason why that the U.N. doesn't is because the U.S. doesn't. It's not because China controls the U.N. And and from what I understand, China does have a lot of influence over the World Health Organization. Um, Certain U.N. organizations, different countries have more influence. But for the most part, the United States is, you know, the dominant superpower and has the most influence of the UN. So that's why they don't recognize Taiwan. And, you know, when it comes to Taiwan, um, it's really, you know, like you said, what would I say to people that look at Taiwan as this helpless island that we need to defend from the big bad communists in China? Um, I think right now the state of the country and the Afghanistan debacle, um, it's a, it's a really good time to, you know, tell people that we, we don't, we can't be the world and we can't worry about the rest of the world. We have too much stuff, too many problems here. I mean, most Americans aren't doing well anymore. Uh, and it's very obvious now it's not just homelessness. Isn't just confined to the big cities. It's like people in small towns see this stuff too. And, um, with a lot of industries dried up, it's just we can't commit to fighting a war against China over an island that is really of no interest to us. The only interest that Washington has in Taiwan is that it, it, it's a counter to to China. It, it's something that they can use. Um, and more people need to understand why Taiwan is Taiwan. It's because in the 50s, um, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, the leader who fought Mao in the civil war, him and his Kuomintang party fled to Taiwan. The communists went to take some of the islands around Taiwan and the U S Navy intervened and stopped them. Um, so this is a product in a way, I mean, 
you know, sure, there's plenty of arguments that if we didn't do that, then how many people would have died on Taiwan from the famines and stuff. But, you know, Chiang Kai-shek, they were not nice to the people of Taiwan, to the indigenous people. They, they weren't, um, they're not saints. Um, they weren't a democracy until the 1990s, I believe. And just kind of, you know, in so many situations around the world, I mean, Hong Kong, um, not necessarily U.S. intervention, but Western intervention is the reason why that's the situation is because the, it was a British colony that they that they took from China, um, you know, gunboat diplomacy uh, in the 1800s during the Opium Wars. And uh, they didn't give Hong Kong democracy re either, really. The British the colonial rule wasn't nice. It's not like they were living in some paradise before the handover in 1997. And a lot of the excuses that the Chinese at Beijing uses to tighten its grip on Hong Kong is the foreign interference, is the U.S., the NED, National Endowment for Democracy, which is a U.S. government-funded uh, organization that funds like pro-democracy movements in, all over the world. And they did that in Hong Kong. And that stuff is, is an excuse for them to... So U.S. intervention just isn't the answer to these problems. Um, and when it comes to Taiwan, I mean, in kind of what we're doing now... Um, instead of what the policy was before Trump, before things really heated up with China, was kind of, you guys take it easy over here in Taiwan and China. You got just like, just chill, you know? And now it's kind of, they're egging on the separatist elements, you would call them, of Taiwan and selling them weapons, which we've done, which the U.S. has done since 1979 when they made the diplomatic switch from Taiwan to Beijing. So, uh, yeah, I would just say U.S. intervention isn't the answer and they can sort it out. I mean, you look at people say Hong Kong is the example that if they make some kind of one country, two systems deal with Taiwan, that they'll eventually erode their independence and rights. But Taiwan is very different than Hong Kong. Taiwan is a pretty big island. It's separate. They have a military. It's It's a completely different situation. And you know, you think about, it's just weird. I would like to go to Taiwan one day uh, just to see what it's like, because you, we just read about how, you know, this stuff and their issues with China. But the reality is ta Taiwanese people travel to China all the time. They're each other's biggest trading partners. So like what ordinary people that live there and ordinary people that live in China, how they get along, I would like kind of just like to learn more about. But uh, so it's just not you know, they could negotiate something. They really don't need us. And us being there and sending warships through the Taiwan Strait and flying, and which we've increased in recent years and flying all these surveillance planes around is just, it's just risking a war that would just kill millions of people. So we yeah. shouldn't do it. Yeah. Did you see um, when, when Biden released the report on the origins of COVID-19, he, th there was something about, how they're going to have to rely on on china to release information and they're really gonna pressure them to do it and he's like i think the quote was like i will stop at nothing to get this information and it just seems like any chance that they get to increase tensions with china it's just i, I see that in, as another avenue because when I, when I talk to everyday conservatives especially it's like you know, China released this virus on the world and that seems to be the narrative. And it's like, well, they have to be punished for it. Yeah. I mean, that's a big, 
part of it. Uh, and I mean, I think that's the reason why the lab leak theory was like considered a conspiracy, like a crazy conspiracy in the mainstream until very recently. And I think a big part of it is because of the Biden that of this new kind of cold war with China, they want to increase tensions with China and this is a perfect way to do it. Um, and when it comes to COVID, I mean, that, that is one of the biggest issues now is that there is kind of this perfect propaganda for people. I mean, it's a real thing COVID and it's killing people. And it came from it as, as far as we know, it started in, in Wuhan, they have this lab. Um, so yeah, how this plays out, I, but unfortunately, like, I, I definitely think that there's something to the lab leak theory. We, we published mm -hmm. stuff on it from Sam Husseini, a journalist who's been following it, um, who broke the story about the eco health lines, like the Pentagon funding to them and Wuhan. And we published that back in December, 2020. Um, but unfortunately, like we're never going to get, I don't think a real, we're never really going to know how yeah. this happened or what happened, or even if it came from the lab, I think that, there's, it's still all circumstantial evidence. I mean, it's a strong case that it came from the lab, but. Uh, well, I, I saw a report this morning. I don't know if you saw it. It was trending on Twitter for a little bit that um, kind of confirms that Fauci lied about funding gain of function research. Yeah. Oh and, yeah. I haven't read that, but I saw something about it. Yeah. And it's like the specific SARS-CoV-2 virus too. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's another thing. Like we should focus the anger and energy on Fauci and yeah. the U S for kind of collaborating on this. If it did. And if it did come from the lab, I mean, uh, and that's another thing. I mean, if you look at all of our wars, uh, you know, we're buddies and friends and partners with somebody one day, and then a year later we could be invading them. Uh, and that's something with China and, and I don't want to get too like conspiratorial, but if you look at, you know, what the neocons in the 1990s, the PNAC project for new American century people were saying ultimately was that everything is going to come down to Southeast Asia and China. So you can say that there was kind of this plan to build them up and turn them into an enemy, similar to what happened with the Soviet union. Um, but China is not the Soviet union, which is what China's new ambassador recently said. Uh, at some event in Washington, you know, he was explaining, he was kind of warning against this attitude in Washington and, and saying like, we're not the Soviet union. We're not isolated. We trade. We're not trying to spread our ideology across the world, which I thought was interesting. Um, and we benefit Amer from American prosperity. I think that's another thing how I can, you know, it, it wouldn't be in China's interest to shut down our economy because we buy all their stuff. You know, um, so I don't think that I, I also like, I don't think there's some global conspiracy led by the Chinese and our elites to lock us down and stuff. I really think that I was, you know, that shame on the American politicians for seeing that happen in China and saying, let's do that here. It's like, that's not stuff that we do in the, U, the United States. You, you can't force people to do stuff here. Uh, so I think it was a power grab and you look at Australia. I mean, I'm getting like, I feel like I'm going on a tangent here, but Australia's a mess, but they never really had, they don't have a bill of rights. They don't have anything protecting them. Uh, not that we really do either, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you mentioned just kind of how China doesn't want to spread their values across the world. And this is something that I didn't realize until recently. I, I don't remember where I learned it, but 
the way that China appears to be expanding across the globe or like getting getting involved like in Afghanistan is that it appears to be um, unconditional. Like they're not requiring them to be democratic or anything. Whereas like the United States says they, they have like a goal for the country. Like they have a specific goal towards nation building or having a new election or something like that. Um, but I, I can't remember where I figured where I learned this, but someone was just saying that China is much different where they'd be willing to get into an agreement, like an economic agreement with a country without anything like that. No moral strings attached. Would, would you say that that's accurate or is that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's very accurate. Um, with the Taliban, one thing that I think they are asking, uh, is that they sever ties with the ETIM, which is the East Turkestan Islamist movement uh, or Islamic. Um, they're a Uyghur Muslim group that the, that China blames for some of the terrorist attacks that happened in Xinjiang. And I think even uh, in Beijing in the capital, there were some attacks there. I'm not sure if they said that ETIM was responsible, but, um, but yeah, I, that that's not, you know, that's different than, the demands that the U S makes, um, they just want to know that if they're, uh, helping the Taliban out, if they're investing in their government and infrastructure, that they're not going to be funding terrorists in Xinjiang. Um, but yeah, for, for the most part, it, it's not. And one really important point, I think Scott made Scott Horton made on when he was on Tim pool show, was a lot of people say this, that China's exporting their like authoritarian ideology on Africa and Central Asia. I think he used Kazakhstan as an example. And it's like the government of Kazakhstan is not bad because of China. And a lot of these African leaders, they're not, it's not like they're, they're really good before China came in. Uh, you know, most governments are really oppressive in that part of the world. Mm. And uh, so I just think that's kind of an unfounded fear. Um, and I think that the U.S., you know, um, I heard Dan McAdams make this point uh, that the U.S., we're kind of taking the worst things of China and using them here. And we're criticizing kind of the best things they do, which is go to other countries and shake hands and get, get into business with them. Uh, and I think that's something that I don't think the U.S. government should do, but I mean, American corporations have always had kind of the backing of the U S government to, to topple governments like in South and Central America and the middle East, if they, to kind of force their business on it. But I mean, if we had just American businessmen going around the world and doing real free market business, I think that would be the best way to spread our influence. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, and people like to use the term economic warfare that China does. Maybe there are some debt trap stuff and then they'll own a port here and there. But I mean, the, the United States with sanctions and cutting people out of the global market, that is real economic warfare. And that hurts people and kills civilians. And that's real evil in my view. Does, does China like impose sanctions on other countries or is that Okay. No, not, not that I know of. Wow. Yeah. Well, they've sanctioned some U.S. companies in response. They sanctioned like Lockheed Martin after this. Oh, yeah, yeah. But they're starting to do that. And they're starting to, you know, from following this stuff, you know, real closely over the past couple of years, um, they were 
Chinese diplomats and officials were always pretty, even through Trump, pretty like tame and, and uh, not that hostile in the rhetoric towards the U.S. or really actions, it didn't seem like. And there was a change in March when Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, they went to Alaska and they had a face-to-face meeting with China's foreign minister and another top official. And Blinken opened it by like accusing China of all this like threatening what they call the rules-based order that the U.S. upholds and just read this list of stuff. We don't, you're doing this in Taiwan. Huh? We don't like this. And I think that the Chinese guy had like two responses. I think one, if Blinken was more diplomatic and cordial, and then another, if Blinken did what he expected him to do, which is what from following the events leading up, I expected Blinken to be the Americans to be very hostile in the meeting. And he, and he responded and he read off a list. Of, he really talked a lot of shit. And uh, since then they've been a little more, um, like their rhetoric has been a little harsher towards the U.S. And then all these like kind of retaliatory sanctions um, came more frequently. So a lot, I, this, a lot of this is just Ameri- like the U.S. kind of doing it to itself, creating an enemy when they need an enemy. Um, so that's what we're seeing, I think. Yeah. And, and I, w- I was just looking into um, how the United States is refusing to give over a bunch of cash from like the, the Afghan the Afghan government treasury now to the Taliban. And I just think that that's going to drive them further towards Russia and China. Um, do you foresee us like getting involved if Russia and China do have more influence influence over Afghanistan or are we really just withdrawing? I don't think we're, I mean, it, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because, you know, China and Russia, they're both, seemingly ready to recognize the Taliban and trade with them and stuff. And then you have the U S withholding funds. Um, so there's really no military option for the U S to spread influence in Afghanistan. Now that's not like a huge invasion that would like that. I don't see happening. So the options are either going to be to try to isolate them from the rest of the world through sanctions, like they do with Iran and stuff, or, or because of the Chinese influence that they see open up diplomatic relations and try to have their own influence in their own way. Um, so yeah, we'll see how it goes. I mean, China is kind of the wild card here, which like the fact that the Taliban recently said that they're like our most important partner, they're going to invest in us. And, and it kind of, I was happy to see that because that I think it is going to force the U S hand to, uh, to engage in the Taliban with the Taliban government and not keep them under sanctions. I hope. Um, so we'll see what happens there, but yeah, I don't, I don't see, cause I mean, the Taliban control more of Afghanistan. They never controlled the entire country before. Um, and now they, the fighting in Panjshir Valley, which is just a little area North of Kabul that, that seems to be done. There was a little resistance force there. And I mean, you know, I, I think that, they have an interest in keeping the peace and uh, you know, they're obviously going to do some pretty bad stuff and they're not going to be the nicest government, but for the most part, they have an interest in relation and keeping, you know, uh, the country from falling into a civil war. So hopefully uh, 
and and you know some of the villages and stuff and tribal leaders they might have some kind of autonomy under this new Taliban government. So we'll see how it, how it goes. Um, yeah, it, it certainly appears that they are acknowledging that, that they really do need to save face and they need to be much better this time. Yeah. They're under new leadership and younger leadership. And um, I, I know that, I don't remember where I read it from, but it, it said that uh, the Taliban, some Taliban leaders actually don't want to rule by force and that they want to, negotiate with tribal leaders. Um, and just if you look at the first press conference they did, their um, willingness to talk to women, it just seems so obvious that that yeah. they're trying to portray that outwards because they, they need to. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they're on like a big PR campaign yeah. right now, it seems like. Uh, and they're saying, you know, the US, they want the US to reopen its embassy and they want a trade relationship. So yeah, I, I am very curious to see how this all plays out. Yeah, and then uh, you, you mentioned Somalia earlier, and I actually haven't talked about this with anyone. Um, mm -hmm. Donald Trump, this is one of the conflicts that Donald Trump actually ramped up and while well, he was like trying to draw down in Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq. So um, do you want to talk about the situation there and exactly what our interests are there or what the United States military interests are, I guess? Yeah. Um, so like you said, the Trump administration ramped up the drone war in Somalia, kind of, that was probably one of his biggest ex escalations, um, and bombed the country. You know, some years there were 60 drone strikes more than any other president. Um, and you know, it's under the guise of fighting Al Shabaab, which is like an Islamist militant group that, uh, pledged, um, loyalty to al-qaeda in 2006 so there they have that to say and and you hear Af africom uh u.s military leaders in the region say this all the time that they're a threat to the homeland that they're plotting attacks here but i think that's completely bogus um al-shabaab uh they grew out of a the it was called the islamic courts union they they ruled over parts of somalia um and there was a U.S. backed Ethiopian invasion in Somalia that uh, I'm sorry, I said that the Al-Shabaab pledged loyalty to Al-Qaeda in 2006. I think it was later than that. I think it was 2012, maybe, because the, the Ethiopian invasion was in 2006. And then the first recorded Al-Shabaab attack was either late 2006 or 2007 against Ethiopian troops in Mogadishu against the occupying force. And um, I'm I'm not. I don't have enough knowledge of uh, Somalia to really say, but I know that Bush and Obama both were had some involvement there in drone strikes. Um, so it wasn't until years of that that they said they were uh, that they pledged their loyalty to Al Qaeda. And you know, for these groups in Africa, the U.S. and them they kind of feed off each other because they say that they're this international terrorist organization. They, sound, they seem more powerful and like they have more influence. And then for the U.S., they sound more scary and they give them an excuse to launch more drone strikes. Um, so there is absolutely no interest for like the American people for us to be involved in Somalia. Um, so uh, Biden, the Biden administration just launched four 
airstrikes in Somalia in at the end of July and into August, kind of throughout August. And that those were the first ones of his presidency. The last one for a while was January 19th, Trump's last full day in office. So months, like about six months later, duh, these airstrikes happened. So I, I don't think so that that drone war is, is going away anytime soon. Uh, uh, there's not many U S troops in Somalia. There's probably just like a few dozen special forces or something, but there's the drones launched from bases in Djibouti and Kenya and elsewhere in East Africa. So, uh, it's one of those low intensity things for the U S. Um, and you know, we don't know what's happening on the ground in Somalia. There's no media. There's no people on smartphones in most of the areas. So the, the AFRICOM does an airstrike and they said, oh, no civilians were killed. But pretty much whenever a journalist or like a human rights group gets in there, they find a completely different scene that they killed like a family and a house or something. So, yeah, I don't think we'll ever really know how many people did Trump killed in Somalia, but I'm sure it was a few thousand. Yeah. And just our last few minutes together, um, I want to get just an update on Syria. I know. A few days ago, Biden actually said that we had no troops in Syria. And this reminded me of the time that uh, I think it was Jim Jeffrey, the ambassador to Syria. He lied to President Trump about having troops in Syria. So there's kind of like a question of whether or not Biden was being lied to or if he genuinely <laughs> just didn't know or, you know, it, it kind of seems up in the air. So um, I guess what's going on in Syria, especially with the backdrop of everything that happened in Afghanistan. And I think, I, I think the, the interesting narrative is when you compare Syria and the narrative in Afghanistan and, and our funding of terrorist groups in, in Syria, like al-Nusra and um, literally being on the side of al-Qaeda and, and different stuff like this, while we're, you know, saying and we're, we're technically arguing that the Taliban, the reason we need to stay in Taliban is because they back terrorists and or they um, harbored terrorists and stuff like that. So, yeah, if you want to just give an update, that would be awesome. With Syria. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it's tough to know exact numbers, but from the reports I've read, there's about a thousand U.S. troops in northeast Syria uh, where the U.S. backs the Sir the Kurdish Syrian democratic forces, they call themselves. Um, and this is all part of the kind of economic war against Damascus, against Assad. Uh, there's oil resources there. There's agricultural resources that they kind of keep out of the hands of this, the government. And people are really suffering in Syria um, after 10 years of just like a brutal war. Uh, and um, over in Idlib, it's still it's a small area in kind of Northwest, not so much West, but North uh, Syria that's ruled by um, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is the one of the Al-Qaeda offshoots from al-Nusra. Um, and the U.S. like kind of tacitly backs HTS because um, Turkey kind of does too. Um, they don't, they say they don't work directly with them, but I'm sure that they have. Uh, and so that there's been a ceasefire between the, the HTS and other groups. There's all sorts of groups in Idlib and the Syrian government and Russia. Like, that's been holding for a while. There's flare ups once in a while. Um, but I think this is kind of this, 
the status quo that the Biden administration wants is U.S. controlling Northeast, Idlib out of the hands of Damascus, and Israeli airstrikes are part of it too. Israel bombs Syria like once a week on average. They bomb Syria all the time. And you could see this. Um, I th- I'm pretty sure it was Brett McGurk, who's the head of Middle East Affairs on the National Security Council. He wrote something recently that outlined this. This is this is what they want. About a thousand troops in northeast Syria, Idlib not under control of Syria and Israeli airstrikes. So it's similar to like the siege of Iraq during the 1990s um, under heavy sanctions, bombed once a week, um, except we have some of their territory this time. Uh, so I don't see the situation really changing anytime soon, but I could, there could be some aspects of it that I'm missing. Um, so, but that's kind of the way things are and the way things have been for a while. Uh, don't see an escalation happening, but I don't see a drawdown either. So, yeah. And, and I think before we go, I think um, it, it might be important just to put it in, into perspective about like why, like with the connection of uh, Syria and Iran and, um, and why Obama wanted to enter Syria and have a regime change there. Um, because, and, and I guess like if, if you want to give an update and whether you're not, whether or not you think Biden will actually try to pursue an Iran deal. Um, like what's the status of that? Cause I know that Israel was really pressuring Biden not to do it and said that they really won't support it. Yeah. It kind of seems like that that's just going to be totally sabotaged. Um, the, the Iran nuclear deal, they entered talks in April with the Rouhani government, who was the last Iranian president and they couldn't reach an agreement because the U.S. refused to lift, lift all of Trump's sanctions, which is the requirement for the U.S. to rejoin the deal. And they blame this all on Iran. Uh, now they have Ibrahim Raisi. He's the new uh, president of Iran. And, you know, everybody calls him a hardliner, but he still ultimately favors a revival of the nuclear deal. Um, but he, he's I think he's just not going to put up with as much crap as Rouhani did, because Rouhani, that was his legacy. His government negotiated it. Um, all the hardliners, you know, in the, in the Iranian government, they have this lesson of Rouhani to look at now of just like all this effort to negotiate with the U S and, and the West just failed. And they are still, and now they're again under really heavy economic sanctions. Um, so, you know, the U S has emboldened bold in these types, but again, right. He says he he'll start the talks soon. Uh, but I, I don't think anything's going to come of it. It's probably Iran's probably going to stay under sanctions. I don't see the deal being revived because now, especially with Afghanistan, all the Hawks in the U S if Biden goes and makes a deal with Iran and lifts sanctions, I mean, they're just going to go after him even more. So I think, uh, it's going to kind of stay the same with Iran too. Yeah. Unfortunately, my hopes is that just because Biden is so, I mean, there's no chance of him being reelected and because he's so old that he just does a hail Mary. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really, no, there's a chance. I mean, I was surprised with the Afghanistan thing. He came out and was just like, this, like yelling at the reporters about why he's leaving Afghanistan. I mean, mm-hmm. there's plenty to criticize him about, but it was kind of cool to see. Yeah. Uh, and he campaigned on not ending the war. He, when he was on a candidate, he was asked and he said, no, nah, I can't leave. I have to leave a few thousand troops there. So mm-hmm. 
interesting because Trump campaigned on ending wars and Obama did and the one that actually did it. Yeah, I I don't get it. But yeah, thanks, man. Um, I really appreciate it. I'll definitely have you back. Yeah, yeah, man. That was great. If if there's um, if you want to tell people where they can find you, uh, please do. Yeah. um, Antiwar.com. I'm usually writing in the news section at the top and you can follow me on Twitter. I've been trying to stay off there lately because it's just a big waste of time. Uh, But at the Camp Dave is my handle. Great. And I'll link to all of that stuff. All right, man. Have a good one. It's the weekend, we can let go. It's the full send, it's the get go. It's the get go, get go. Still not as green as a bank account screen on.